This is the I Read Comic Books Podcast. I'm your host for a very special mini-sode with the one and only Paul Jaisley. Hey, Mike. Pleasure to be here. You know, Paul, I'm very excited to talk about comic books today because it's not like we ever really do that between <laughs> right. me and you. Um, <laughs> but today, we've got a very special mini-sode for the folks at home today because we're going to be talking about best relaunched comics that brought in a new era for a character because, you know what, it's 2023 and the year just started for pretty much everyone. And I figured yeah. what better way to bring in the new year than talk about the way that new versions of characters were brought into their various comic book continuities. So let's just kick things off with, I guess you've got a pretty decent sized list. Let's start with yeah. your side of things. What, what were one of the first big relaunches that like really redefined things for some characters? Yeah, you know, it's funny. You're talking about new year. It's time for a fresh start. And I was trying to think of books that didn't just like reboot a character, but really kind of push them in a different direction, really kind of change things and... You know, uh, there are any number of Batman reboots, the Superman versions, retellings of the origins, but they don't change the character on a fundamental level. And like, right, right. The best example I could think of, and it kind of be maybe the most obvious example, is Giant Size X Men number one from 1975. That's written by Len Wein, art by Dave Cockrum. And this, the reason the X Men are what they are today is because of this book. I mean, like, the X Men title was in danger of being canceled right before this came out. It was basically a reprint title. The team was not popular. But Len Wein and Dave Cockrum took the core concept of the X-Men, expanded the roster to be multi-ethnic, to be multi-international, brought in characters like Wolverine and Storm, who I think, you know, when I think of the X-Men, I think of those characters, and they debuted in this issue. So mm -hmm, mm -hmm. the success the X-Men have had since 1975 throughout you know, the 90s with the cartoon, even today, you're obviously an X-Men fan, Mike, so you know the popularity of these characters, and I think it's because of this version that was introduced in Giant Size X-Men number one that made them the household name that they are today. Yeah, yeah. It's funny because Giant Size X-Men was honestly one of the first X-Men comics I ever read Oh, okay. in, in a yeah. strange way. Like, I, I think I've told this story on the show a million times, but like I, when I first got into reading X-Men comics, I grabbed one of those Marvel Masterworks books, right? Like a friend oh, yeah. of mine bought sure. it for me. And this was one of the first issues in that Masterwork about like, this is a brand new era for X-Men and all this stuff. And I had no idea what was going on, but I recognized Nightcrawler. I recognized Cyclops from the video game, recognized, you know, uh, Colossus and Wolverine and Storm right uh so yeah. It's like, yeah this is the x-men that i want come to find out <laughs> like <laughs> this is a radical new thing of you know when the book yeah. was coming out so you know it, it, you're totally right and you're right on the money when you say that like this established the new direction i mean i can't think of the x-men like you said without wolverine and cyclops and or i guess yeah. in colossus and nightcrawler and storm right like brand new characters that are established in this issue and they totally redefine what the x-men are and continue to be to this day right like wolverine's still very important storm is probably one of the most important characters ever in x-men history yeah, you know nightcrawler absolutely. cyclops yeah. all or, or cyclops and colossus all of these people are on the council or the quiet council in hawksbox right like 30 40 years later we're still talking about these characters and it's because of this issue yeah absolutely so you talk about a, a book that redefines a character or franchise this is the first one that came to mind. And yeah, it's a pretty obvious choice because of that. So, mm -hmm, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, and I guess my, my curiosity, you've read through this book, right? I, I imagine you've read it yeah. at least a couple of times, right? Um, yep. what, what's your take on it as someone who's not like a humongous X-Men fan like I am? Well, it's interesting because my introduction to the X-Men is through, you know, the the Jim Lee and uh, why I'm blanking on his name, Chris Claremont. 
okay. X-Men. Yeah, when yeah. that hit, I mean, I was a DC kid growing up, but when that hit, all of my friends had that issue. I knew about the X-Men. I, I knew the cartoon when it came out. I knew the, the arcade game. So like that was the team for me. So as I got older and was kind of curious about more Marvel stuff, started reading X-Men, you know, I picked up the you know, one of those essential collections, like you mentioned, that had this in it. I was like, yeah, I can totally see why this was a big deal. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's X-Men is still not a thing, a book that I read regularly, but reading that and and knowing that Ween and Cockrum were looking at the success of the new Teen Titans at DC and saying, right. we got to do a team book like this. Yeah. You know, and it, yeah. it makes sense why that clicked at that time. It does feel pretty radically different from the Jack and Stan X-Men that I'd also read around the same time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's far more engaging and far more interesting than the original X-Men were, in my opinion. It feels less campy. I mean, like, we, we could talk about giant size X-Men all day. But yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm really glad that you brought this one because like yeah. it like when I was thinking about this, I was thinking like, oh, solo arcs and stuff like that. But this is truly like changes the direction of comics forever for Marvel, right? Yes, like un- unbelievable yeah. to think that a single issue like this could be so impactful. And yet here we are, you know, yeah. it's it's amazing. Uh, well, let me let me jump into one of my books because I was sure. like I said, I was thinking more, you know, solo characters or things where like a character went from a nothing to a something, you know. Um, and for me, you know, this is kind of weird to say, given how much I think we've talked about this character in the past. But Animal Man number one from 2011, Jeff Lemire, Travel Foreman, like yeah. this book, I think, took Animal Man out of obscurity. Right. I think after the Morrison <laughs> run. I personally can't think of another time anyone had ever brought up this character other than in jest, right? Like there's a character who can adapt the powers of an animal. Like that sounds so corny and stupid when you think about it. And while Morrison did a wonderful job with their run, um, defining Mm -hmm. that character in a way that no one else has been able to, to, do in since their their run um i think lemire grabs on to animal man and says let's make this a bit scarier let's make this a bit more insane and of course coming into the the new 52 and all this stuff like everyone was getting a relaunch but for me i really think just looking at animal man and just the history of it the characters since after you know i read in this um this this run feels super impactful in changing the direction of not just animal man but also swamp thing and other characters who are involved in this red and green and gray um that we still see play out like even the latest swamp uh not swamp thing uh yeah swamp <laughs> thing run that, that yeah. ram v was doing still taps into this idea of the green yes. and the red and all these things um and this is all coming out of a combination of work between um scott snyder and jeff lemire establishing this as part of the new 52 so i i really think that this run is super duper influential um mm-hmm. in terms of like really redefining a character and breathing new life into them without erasing their past which is what i find to be really interesting about a lot of dc continuity is is handling that kind of business like managing to keep continuity in place but also like rewriting it in a way that feels supernatural um i think yeah. it takes a really masterful writer to do that and i think lemire totally does it with this run yeah it's interesting because you mentioned the morrison run and i think people when people think of animal man they probably think of you go graham morrison's yeah. work which is which is their first dc work really but what's interesting is like what makes that series interesting is the way the story is told morrison really doesn't change the origin or power set of animal man at all like it's mm-hmm. pretty straight from the original animal 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 man stories from the sixties or whatever, just Morrison, you know, pushes what the character can do or pushes his narrative in a different direction. But mm-hmm. what Lemire does is really kind of redefines Animal Man's power set, where he gets his power, the sort of scope of using more horror elements rather than making a sort of a generic superhero character. Mm-hmm. So it's a, this idea of like, not only is it a new interpretation, but it's really pushing the capabilities of the character and the scope of that story 
even further than Morrison, which is kind of impressive, really. Yeah. Yeah. It's it's one of those things where you hear about these these runs and you're like, how could someone ever top that? You know, <laughs> like I, I think about this all the time when I'm, you know, thinking about Hoxpox, right? Like how how are, is anyone ever going to be able to top this stuff that's going on with the X-Men? I don't know if we'll ever <laughs> get out of the Krakoan era. And you know what? I'm fine with yeah. that because I really like it. And I feel like two or three years is too short um, for us to erase all of it, which I think that they're always trying to do because drama. Right. But you know Morrison's run on on Animal Man is like really defining it and especially with the way that it ends it's so yeah. absurd and insane that it's like how do you tell a better story than that and Lemire <laughs> finds a way I think despite the way that it was received when it first came out I think overall when you look at the story from beginning to end especially with the ways that it tied into Swamp Thing and the way that it made <laughs> you know, the universe kind of come together while also telling this very singular story about Buddy Baker um, is it's impressive. And it, it's a very, very solid story that, again, I don't know how anyone's going to top it, which is maybe why <laughs> we haven't seen an Animal Man comic since this run, you know? Yeah, that's um, true. It, yeah. yeah, it's kind of interesting that the, that character's sort of two defining stories are kind of like there are singular things you know like there's not mm -hmm. like been a continuations of them really because they kind of like stand alone it's like it's interesting that this the most obscure possible character has generated two like landmark runs in dc continuity <laughs> so it's yeah kind of funny yeah so you know god help anyone who tries to pick up this mantle next that's all we're saying <laughs> exactly yeah well you know speaking of graham morrison i know mm -hmm. one thing that came to mind for me immediately again was doom patrol number 19 which was the first issue that morrison wrote for Doom Patrol, uh, Richard Case was on art for that. And of course, there are different artists throughout Morrison's run. But that book, again, is such a radical shift from what had come before. You know, the Doom Patrol had existed in the 60s. They're a very strange team. They get relaunched in the 80s. And uh, those first 18 issues of Doom Patrol that Paul Kupperberg was writing, they're super generic. It's He turns the Doom Patrol into just a, kind of a generic super team. Um, there are a lot of new characters introduced that just apparently their powers are shooting laser beams. It's kind of just like reading the X-Men at the time. You know what I mean? <laughs> sure. So when Morrison comes in and like basically blows the team up, gets down to the core characters again, robot man, um, negative man who becomes Rebus later on. He brings in crazy Jane. He's got the chief. And then Morrison somehow makes that superhero team dynamic into something completely different. You know, Morrison yeah. takes the doom patrol and says this isn't just a team of superheroes they are the world's strangest heroes and they have to fight the strangest you know threats possible mm -hmm. and i we've talked about the doom patrol the listeners can go listen to mike and paul read doom patrol on patreon we go through a morrison's run we break it apart but again like that is such a radical shift and no one's ever going to go back to that the doom patrol mm -hmm. series that keep coming back to they always have to compete against morrison's run for better or for worse you know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like it completely changed what those characters are and what you can do with those characters in the DC continuity. Right. And it's ultimately for the better, right? Like oh, for sure. I, I yeah. think, you know, the, making those characters, the, the, their, their counterpart, the weirdness of the universe, right? Like even in, in the Doom Patrol run, it's funny because I feel like the Justice League shows up in the run and they're just like, we don't know what to do. And Doom Patrol's <laughs> like, well, we're just going to go in this painting. Don't worry about it, you know? Um, <laughs> exactly. You know, yeah. th that to me is is so fun because it, it really sets them 
out as like a thing to be not compared to the Justice League. They are a separate entity completely, yeah. right? Um, and I think mm-hmm. other other writers like you know Gerard Way has tried, I think, to continue that story. And I think the the even the the Doom Patrol TV show does a great job of capturing oh, yeah. like the the absurdity yeah. of the Doom Patrol. Um, and it's all because of this run that they are have been reestablished as this thing. And I think to see whatever the next evolution is going to be is going to be really interesting because I think yeah. there is more places you can take this but it's going to be really hard again to top this type of relaunch um <laughs> to change the direction or add something that is significantly different um from what they are because i think what they have right now is really really good you know like yeah. who doom yeah. patrol is um and how people have written them over the years is all because of now because of uh, this run by morrison um and i think that that's great yeah and i do want to mention that you know when morrison leaves the series you know rachel pollock takes over and that's a really interesting shift and like that stuff has only recently been collected thankfully at this point. So that's mm-hmm. worth diving into because, you know, Rachel Pollock is a trans woman. You know, they're using the groundwork that Morrison lays down to explore issues of sexuality and mm-hmm. what that means and how characters can can change and adapt. And it's like pushing, you know, superhero superhero <laughs> comics into very, you know, different waters than they had been before. So I mean that mm-hmm. not just for Doom Patrol or DC in general, but throughout the industry. Like here's what you can do with superheroes. I mean, that's such a broad spectrum now in part because of what Morrison did with Doom Patrol. Yeah. Yeah. It's, I mean, this is <laughs> somehow we managed to talk a significant amount about Grant Morrison in one episode. And I don't understand how we always come back to this, Paul. What the hell's going on? <laughs> uh, but no, it's clearly, clearly they've had significant influence on the comic book industry um, yeah. in a way that I think we're still discovering as time goes on. Right. Yeah. And I think one thing that Morrison has done, which fits into with this episode, is finding characters that have kind of fallen by the wayside and breathing new life into them and really exploring what they can do. I think, you know, like I mentioned, Animal Man, they stay pretty true to the Animal Man character. Doom Patrol, Morrison really goes nuts and kind of pushes the characters even further and <laughs> redefines them in a very interesting way. So Yes, yes, most definitely, most definitely. Uh, well, let's talk about more redefinitions. Um, I put this one on here. I don't know if it fits perfectly with the topic, but I do still think that it's relevant because it's it's significant, right? Um, I'm talking about the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles from 2011. This is scripted by Kevin Eastman, written by Tom Waltz, uh, with art by Dan Duncan. And I put this down because it feels like a fresh start for the Turtles, right? The Teenage Mutant Turtles hadn't had a comic in a little while. And if they did, it was it was small, limited runs of things. Um, and this is IDW really trying to say, OK, we're going to bring the Turtles back. And they have like this is still an ongoing series. They're like 140 hmm. or something issues out at this point. And wow. I feel like this is a fresh, modern take of on the Turtles, not necessarily redefining them and who they are, right? It's still Michelangelo, Leonardo, Donatello, Raphael, Splinter, April and Neil still here. Casey Jones is going to show up. I mean, eventually we get Bebop and Rocksteady. You know, wow. we get Krang. We get everybody that you know, Shredder and the Foot Clan. But I think that this this series is is important in terms of redefining the characters because it gets rid of all of the wonkiness that I think the Eastman and Laird <laughs> comics originally had. Right. I don't know about you, sure. Paul, but I've gone back and I've read some of those old black and white comics and. To say that they're not all winners is maybe not the right description, <laughs> but it's definitely it's definitely not the turtles that I think most people have in their mind, right? And and to see that this relaunch of the series um, takes that idea of what we know about the turtles, everything that's been established in the cartoons and all this stuff, and then tries to really get rid of all the fluff and give you a straightforward like 
this is a story about four brothers and they all know kung fu and they've got these crazy you know enemies and all this stuff and getting mm-hmm. rid of kind of the wildness that i think the eastman and laird stuff did way back in the day and in, in giving you what i think the people giving the people what they want essentially they you know they change up some people's origins right they change up how the turtles came to be how splinter became to be where april o'neill came into the story how casey jones got started dr stockman has a different origin story krang is introduced very early on um in a different position you know so they they change up a lot of the continuity again to make it all line up in a more straightforward narrative rather than saying oh no the turtles go to space or oh no the turtles go to a different (laughs) dimension um and then somehow coming back and then relating all that instead they're like no no no, we're going to ground the story a little bit we're going to tell the story a little bit more straightforward so that this all lines up in a way that is easier for people to digest it follows a lot of the standard comic tropes and i think because of that it has seen pretty wide success right like you don't do you know 16 17 18 volumes of a series if it's not any good right right um so i I really appreciate it for that reason um and i've all the teenage mutant turtles that i've read from this run has been super enjoyable like i went back and reread the first issue for this episode and i was like yeah man issue one you're right in the middle of it where's Raphael? we learn about the origin story like all this stuff lines up and it's super good um and i'm glad that the turtles have seen success because now we end up getting a new tv show now we you know more action figures more toys and stuff (laughs) um uh, for better or for worse but i i do love that there is an ongoing tmnt comic um because i love tmnt with all my heart and i feel like this is the the right kind of comic that i could give to a younger reader and it would totally work for them whereas the eastman and laird stuff i just i don't think i could ever give that to a child (laughs) (laughs) right but and that's interesting too because like up until now we've talked about rebooting or redefining characters that maybe weren't that popular or kind of been forgotten about but here mm-hmm, we're talking about mm-hmm. like the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles were like iconic. I mean, they are yeah. cultural landmarks. They're in the zeitgeist. It's like, how do you successfully reboot that and give it a new lease on life? And how do you, while, while, uh, you know, appeasing the fans that already exist mm-hmm. and yet making it more accessible to new fans. Like I've never read a TMNT comic. I'll admit it. Sure. Like, I was a fan of the cartoon, obviously, as a kid. I had a bunch of the action figures. I remember like, yeah. loving the first couple movies, but like I've never, ventured into the comics but now i might have to pick this up this feels like the best most accessible version of them on the page so mm-hmm. that, that's a good yeah. sign of being able to reboot something that is already successful to begin with yeah and i mean i think we talk a lot about how reboots are you know they, they annoy us sometimes or whatever but i think like calculated intentional reboots not for the sake of we need a new number one but a we're going to reestablish things to make things more accessible like that is good for the industry right like if you you know 500 issues of uncanny x-men is a lot for someone to take in but like a new x-men number one that's going to run for another five ten years is fine right i think like there is a, a line to be drawn for all that stuff now the tmnt stuff does kind of go into some strange directions i will admit i know that i haven't read all of it but i've heard stories from nick who has read a lot of it it's just like there's weird tie-ins and they do like little side stories and you don't know what's actually relevant and what's not you know just like standard you know your regular comic book series but the main story has i think been consistently told and has been very good um and i think like again it's accessible like you could probably get it at your library because i know they sell it in like 500 editions and they're all super well well done and yeah, I don't know more TMNT. I, I just love that. I'm, I'm glad that, like I said, glad that there's more of it. And um, mm-hmm. I I feel like I could happily just like put this up, put it on my shelf and know that I have like a really good, easy to read, you know, Teenage Mutant Turtle story. So yeah, I don't know. Redefining. I'm glad nice. for it. Yeah. Speaking of that, like taking a character that's already existed and is successful and kind of 
changing it enough to make it more more accessible or updating it. Example I thought of was the Captain America series that Ed Brubaker and Steve Epting did. Uh, that started oh. in two thousand four. Oh which man, yeah, is so great because like I was never a, a big Marvel reader when I was a teenager. But when I got back through into reading comics again, that's right when the Winter Soldier story that was in part of this Captain America run was starting up. So I was hearing about it and it got me to go back to go read the stuff from the beginning. So you get the Captain America sort of reboot with Brubaker and Epting. They do the death of Captain America story. They bring back Bucky Barnes and it feels like really a different version of an established character, but still mm-hmm. sticking with what make, makes the character great and appealing. Like reading that, alongside the Captain America movies that were coming out with Chris Evans, like, oh, I really love this character. And it's not a character I ever really thought about before, but -hmm. it really kind of made me appreciate what Captain America represents and what you can do with that character. And more importantly, I mean, Brubaker and Epting, they break the number one rule. I remember like being a, a kid reading Wizard Magazine and the joke was always the two characters that can never come back from the dead are, um, Uncle Ben and Bucky Barnes. And they broke mm-hmm, that one mm-hmm. of those rules, right? They bring back Bucky Barnes, they make him the Winter Soldier. And now we have movies that are making a billion dollars, you know, that feature that character. Like that's pretty amazing to yeah. pluck a character like that out of obscurity, uh, bring him back without it being like corny or nostalgic, and really redefining what Captain America and Bucky represent and what you can do with that character. I think that's r- some really fantastic superhero comics that Brubaker Captain America stuff. Oh, absolutely. I when I, I saw you put this down on in our notes, I was like, oh man. I literally just listened to another <laughs> podcast about someone reading this story for the first time, right? And uh the host of that show, he also walked walked through uh like the history of the character and stuff. And I mean, I've I've read plenty of Captain America comics at this yeah. point. I've read a ton of Winter Soldier comics, right? And even to this day, going back to this Winter Soldier run, you go, Oh my God, is this allowed <laughs> in comic books, right? Because I feel yeah. like at the time when this is coming out, right, this 2004, mm-hmm. uh, Joe Quesada is really pushing some like edgier stories, right? We got a, we got uh, the Marvel Max line that's going on. This is the mainline Captain America that's happening. And yeah. we're talking about like child soldiers and like little like this little kid having to sneak into these places to murder all these Nazis. And while I'm all for murdering Nazis, I'm also <laughs> like this kid is going to be star- scarred from, you know, this devastating, you know, destruction that he's caused. Um, yeah. And I love that that becomes like the focus of the story. Mm-hmm. And yeah, completely changes Bucky Barnes. Um, I didn't know that that was a rule about not bringing back Bucky Barnes, but I'm so <laughs> glad that they tried to break it. Yeah. <laughs> they broke yeah, it. It's always kind say. of a joke. Like, why would you bring this character back? Like, it doesn't add anything to the story. And it's like, they found a way right. to make, to bring him back. And like, you bring up a good point that I think is worth mentioning too. Like, I've always viewed Captain America as a superhero, but I like that, Brubaker and Epting said like, no, he was created to fight world in World War II. And like, mm-hmm. and Brubaker, you know, there are essays in those issues in the collected editions where Brubaker's like, I had to show Captain America killing Nazis. Like, that's what mm-hmm. he did. He uses a gun. He did this because that's what needed to be done. And like, sure, the character can change after the war ends and Captain America now is kind of different than that character. But like, it really kind of reestablishes the root appeal of captain america why jack kirby and joe simon created him in the first place you know what i mean Mm -hmm. meanwhile giving him a sort of modern sheen and again it's pretty gutsy to kill literally kill captain america you know in the early 2000s you know not that long after september 11th during the invasion of iraq like when patriotism is at an all-time high and jingoism is an all-time high that's pretty ballsy to kill off captain america and they handle it so well that's such a good issue when that happens so Mm mm-hmm 
Uh, yeah. Oh, yeah. You're, you're. I swear to God, Paul. If I start rereading Civil War because of you, I, I'm never gonna let you live it down. <laughs> I don't. I won't vouch for that. But I, I'll, I might have to pull off my copy of uh, the collector edition of Brubaker's Captain America to revisit. Yeah, it's been a while. Yeah. No. And it's really good. Again, it's like. I love that this book, I mean, we could talk about this, just this one arc, you know, for, for days, I think as well. But like, I, I love that this book, like, again, you said, took it, put a modern sheen on this character that has been just, just the, the, the face of like bald face patriotism, um, adds these, these layers of things that work right in the time, right? 2004, we're talking like the born identity is a big thing. We're loving all these Tom Clancy novels type yeah. movies, right? We're like, there's espionage and there's murder and there's all this secret stuff. It's like, why not give that to the one character who real realistically did all of this stuff back in the forties? Um, I, and I love that how well it works. Um, I, obviously Brubaker is a fantastic storyteller when it comes to crime and espionage. He's done plenty of other stories with this. Um, and this is where we really see it. Um, kind of shine mm -hmm. for him as a creator. Sure. So, like, yeah, I, uh, such a such a great reimagining of a character, a re reestablishing of a character, um, with Bucky Barnes and even Captain America in this run. Um, but let me talk about one more that I've got on my list. Um, just because it's the it's the most obvious one that I could put on the list, which is Hawkeye, uh, the 2012 story, Matt Fraction, David Aha, uh, you know, redefining Hawkeye from kind of like semi militaristic, kind of like over the top, uh, superhero boy into. Uh, just a, a a loser, you know. <laughs> um, it, <laughs> yeah. it's it's the book that establishes that like the in, in the Marvel universe that these superheroes are just people. You know, I think we've seen other books like I think a Miss Marvel book had been coming out for a while yeah. that about Carol Danvers focused a lot on her life trying to be a modern single woman while also being a superhero. But uh, this Hawkeye book really hits the ground running, um, and especially that first arc of establishing Clint. Barton is such a loser. Uh, he's got nothing going on but being a superhero. He kind of hates it. Uh, he's just trying to live in his apartment. Um, he's He hits all of these things that I think a lot of people were feeling in 2012 about just kind of this lackadaisical nature of, of life. And uh, yeah, it it redefines who he is. And I think even to this day, now we kind of deal with this, this Clint Barton character in all future comics as a, kind of a bumbling <laughs> idiot superhero. Yeah, and I, I think it's for the better, right? It adds a lot of comedic value to Avengers comics. Uh, we get, of course, Kate Bishop established as being this amazing Hawkeye as well um, through this series and gets to carry on that legacy through many other books. Um, so like it's a double, you know, reestablishment of characters, Kate Bishop blowing up as well as Clint Barton yep. being kind of like, again, this lovable idiot. Yeah. And that, that's interesting too, because like Hawkeye is a character that I knew nothing about really. I think like, I knew he existed, mm -hmm. but I'd never read West Coast Avengers, but he was a character that I feel a lot of people kind of celebrated as being a sort of minor character that they identified with. And a lot mm -hmm. of people remember when the series came out, those fans saying, well, this is clearly not the same Clint Barton. Like right. uh, Fraction right. Aha took a lot of liberties with the character to really make him different. So it's almost like a completely new character. But as a result, you get a much bigger fan base. There's so many people who've read yeah. this that have probably never read like me. Red West Coast Avengers or any other Hawkeye books. So yeah, I mean, I know that you know. I think a lot of other people will probably call out like my lack of knowledge here because I don't really know what Hawkeye was doing before this, right? Like you said, West Coast Avengers. <laughs> right. I know he had like back and forth love relationship with a couple different characters that have been focal stories in other Avengers comics. But like, man, I don't, I don't even care because I find this version of Hawkeye to be way more interesting, right? <laughs> yeah. 
and, sure. and I think it's it's grown the character more. And I think they've brought up those relationships in subsequent series. I know Jeff Lemire did a really big run that was really interesting, as well as a couple other people have done runs where we see those relationships kind of feeding back into the story. But I mean, this reestablishment of who Hawkeye is really, like you said, opens the door for a much bigger fan base who then can go back and maybe discover and then try to like rewrite their brain to say, okay, how do I take this kind of dummy Clint Barton and tie him back to these older stories and make it all yeah. make sense. You know, I, I think that's fun. And it, you know, it allows people to, again, get access to a character that they, as we've talked about in other examples here, like maybe folks didn't know about, like I, like you said, I didn't know about Hawkeye either before this book came out. And then suddenly it's like the biggest book on the stance, you know? Right. And it's a good way of doing a legacy character. Like I feel like the Kate Bishop stuff in a lot of ways is kind of like more interesting because it is so different sure. from the Clint Barton. Because like you're watching Clint Barton, like you're rooting for him, but he is kind of like that lovable loser. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. A lot of sort of interpersonal relationships he has, those issues he has with his his former you know romantic partners, like they're all his fault. Like you can't. It's hard to root for that character in a lot of those circumstances. Yeah. But Kate yeah. Bishop is like a breath of fresh air. Like, and I really love again. I'm maybe dating myself a little bit, but like when I was reading that stuff, and I realized that. Uh, Matt Fraction was just writing episodes of the Rockford Files, like the 80s uh, private eye show that, um, <laughs> you know, where it's like a private eye living on the beach in a mobile home. I'm like, this is literally what Kate Bishop is doing. It oh, is yeah, the Rockford yeah, yeah. Files. You know what I mean? <laughs> and what I an love obscure that. reference. I did not even put that together. Yeah. So I, that always cracked me up because I felt like there were certain moments like he's just having fun writing this character, doing whatever he wants, but it all works. Cause even if you don't get the Rockford files reference, like it's still fun stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah, totally. 100%. (laughs) Uh, Well, Paul, let's get to the last one that you've got on your list and we can wrap this show up. Yeah. Um, we're talking about, you know, characters that completely break from the previous version of the character. You know, you talk about like Hawkeye. Probably, again, one of the most obvious examples I could think of was when Alan Moore took over Swamp Thing. Um, So Swamp Thing before that was basically a horror comic. You know what I mean? And like he was Mm -hmm. just a guy who fell in the swamp. He had to fight another swamp guy. Like it's pretty generic stuff. I mean, Len Wein created and uh, Bernie Rison created the character. They're fun horror comics. But what Alan Moore does when he takes over the title uh, with artist Steve Bissett is he actually says, look, it's not just a green guy in the swamp. He's actually an swamp elemental he's an elemental of nature itself and that's a completely different interpretation of the character and you can still mm-hmm. do horror based stories you can still do superhero stories but it really again really expands the definition of the character and i think this is still the version of swamp thing that we have today and when people write swamp thing today they write swamp things dialogue the same way alan moore did you know what i mean mm-hmm. like it's almost like even though we say Swamp Thing was created by Len Wein and uh, Bernie Wrightson, the version of Swamp Thing we have today was because of Alan Moore. Like, he mm. really does change that character in a very fundamental way. And it's interesting because it's not his first Swamp Thing issue. He takes over at Swamp Thing number 20 in 1984 and kind of does like a wrap-up of all the previous storylines. Then issue 21, um, the autopsy, where you actually have Swamp Thing being on an autopsy table and they realize like, oh, his internal organs are just plant matter. Like he's not, no longer human anymore. Ah. He's just the memories of the previous character, the, pre- the human in this purely, uh, you know, green plant-based body, this elemental body. And like, that, again, that expands the character in an interesting way. And I think Alan Moore, that stuff, 
I absolutely love. I mean, I go back and forth a lot of Alan Moore stuff, but I think his Swamp sure. Thing run is tremendous. Just like he takes Swamp Thing from the swamp and there's a whole story where Swamp Thing is like on Apocalypse and New Genesis with the new gods. It's like, wow, you can only do that in comics. You can only do that in DC <laughs> comics. It's great, great stuff. And it's because of that radical changing of the characters you're able to do that, I think. Oh, man. I think I know what I'm reading. It's 2023, man. <laughs> this is what I'm reading. I'm reading this book. This is what I'm starting my year with. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> Just kidding. We're recording this in the past, folks. In case you didn't realize, it's not actually 2023 yet. But I think I'm going to start 2023 reading this book because I it's yeah. been on my forever to read list. And I, I feel like... This is one of those books when you put up like the upper echelon of comics that you everyone should read. And I'm not talking your your Watchmen's or your Dark right, Knights yeah. or whatever. Right? I'm talking like actual really good runs of books. And I, I know that this is like one of those books. Um, uh-huh. So I, I think I got to do it. I think I'm going to start that after we finish recording this. This is this is a must read. <laughs> I know it is. I know it is. There you go. Yeah. Uh, maybe I'll finally understand what the appeal is of this Swamp Thing character. <laughs> um, despite me owning like dozens and dozens of Swamp Thing comics, like I, I feel yeah. like I've never connected. And I know that this is the book that's probably going to do it for me. So I think so. Yeah. Because you've already talked about Animal Man and you talk about the connection yeah. between the red and the green. And that's all from this. I mean, the people have taken what Alan Moore, you know, suggests in this series and taken it much further than he did. But mm-hmm. like it's all mm-hmm. there in this, that first issue, number 21. It's like, it's pretty amazing that like, a little seed, not to draw too heavy of a plant metaphor, but that little seed <laughs> sprouted in such a big redefining of the DC cosmology. Yeah. So it's pretty impressive stuff. Yeah, I mean, all right, you sold me. It's this, and then I'm rereading <laughs> all Civil War. I got it. I figured it oh, out. No. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh, well, cool, Paul. Thank you so much for doing this episode with me, man. This is really cool. I'm, I'm glad we got to kind of talk about... I think some books that I forgot were really cool in establishing and just like know that there's probably more to come, but it's, it's clear that like there are things. And if you look at all of these runs, I think you can see they all have left seeds after they've yeah. finished their runs to be like, Hey, pick this up when you're done. Cause I think it, with the exception of TMNT, which is ongoing, I think all of these other runs have left bits and pieces for other writers to pick up. And we've seen other writers pick them up, but um, these are the ones that are like the most redefining. So I, I really like that about all these these examples that we have. Yeah. Um, well, I guess to, to wrap things up, you know, you can always find us on Instagram, Twitter, TikTok, Discord, Goodreads, all the links are in the show notes. So make sure you click on them and follow us, subscribe, blah, 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 all that stuff. Make sure you check us out on Patreon at patreon.com slash IRCB podcast to get access to stuff like Mike and Paul Reed's Doom Patrol, as well as Saga of Saga, IRCB Movie Club, and so many other things. Infinity Shred is the best band in the universe. They do all of our music. Xander sees you when you're sleeping, but he doesn't know if you're awake. Happy 2023. Thank you for listening to this episode. Thank you to Paul for recording with me. And until next time, comics are good and so are you.